A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, when a CIA officer is accused of committing sexual crimes against women in other countries, can there be justice? Well, this alleged sexual predator who used apartments rented by the U.S. Embassy to commit his crimes has pleaded guilty to the drugging and assault of multiple women. The evidence against him was kept by him, say prosecutors. More than 500 photos and videos documenting himself with his naked and unconscious victims. This former CIA operative backed out of a previous plea deal. Will this one stick? But first, a teenager standing up for a friend who was being bullied gets attacked himself by a mob of teens, as many as 10 high schoolers. The vicious beating captured on video as onlookers just watched as this boy was pummeled until unconscious. He ultimately died. His parents, who raised him to be a good and decent young man, are overwhelmed with grief and asking what the rest of us are asking. What is wrong with this world? Who could do such a thing? And why did it take the police so long to make arrests if the attack was recorded? We are recording this on Wednesday, November 15th of 2023. Our guest today is Danny Smith, a former homicide detective and a friend of the show. Danny's also a published author whose work, the Dickie Floyd detective novel series, can be read wherever you get your books. Plus, of course, his very own memoir that he has recently published. Danny, welcome back. It's such a pleasure to see you. Thank you, Anna. It's always good to be here. Uh, I always appreciate your insight um, because you are a truly thoughtful human being. And many of our regulars know your story. But for those of you who don't, Danny started writing to deal with his PTSD from the horrors of what he saw as an L.A. County sheriff's deputy. And so Nothing Left to Prove is your memoir about that. Um, And also, for those of you who don't know, Danny and I met on a horrific homicide, a really horrible, horrible murder of a little girl. And... um, Today's story case has me very upset, as I know it has you very upset, Danny, because we've lost a 17-year-old. And for those of us who are parents, for those of us who have been bullied, we know exactly what it feels like to be mobbed. Whether you are mobbed in a physical way like this young boy was, or whether you are mobbed by the nasty things that other children say to you, or the things that are written about you in social media... And um, I'm at a loss for words today, Danny. Yeah, I mean, it's so tragic. Anytime, um, anytime a child is, is murdered and, you know, he's 17, but he's still a kid. Um, and, and then in, in a fashion where you have to stop and question, what is wrong with our society? You know, why do we have other children who are behaving so violently that they're able to literally stomp a person to death? And, that, and that's what's troubling more than anything, truthfully, in this story is that is that it seems that society has uh, um, reached a whole new level of, of the acceptance of violence. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what to make of it. No, I don't. His parents are grieving. The community there is grieving. And 
justice. I mean, what could justice ever look like here? This, this boy, he's gone forever. This family has lost their child. And the fact that this video exists, I think just makes it, I mean, it, I suppose it's, it's a positive thing for the prosecution to be able to get whatever justice there can be in the legal system for the rest of us. Um, it's so disturbing and unsettling and for his parents who can barely look at it. And we will be hearing from the father about how he just could only stand a few seconds of it. You know, um, again, I'm without words today and I can't wait to hear all of your comments about this. So, so let's get right to the details here. Our first case is out of Las Vegas. And this is where a teen was mobbed and killed by 10 schoolmates, say police. Why? Well, his father has publicly said that the, these kids were picking on a friend of his son's and his friend was smaller and so harder to defend himself. Father says that they took something from the younger boy, AirPods maybe, um, police say some kind of wireless headphones, earbuds, and that the young man stepped in to try and help his friend. And this is how it ended very, very badly. What is so callous about this is that it was videotaped. It was recorded on cell phones. There were apparently several videos from several angles. The father says that there was one person who tried to save the young man from the beating, but he himself was pummeled. And my question is, those kids who were taking the videotape, who were videotaping this, what? You couldn't put your phone down long enough to save him? And who, who stomps on someone's head until they're almost dead? I mean, he died. He could never recover from this. Yeah, Anna, the, um, uh, there have been some arrests that have been made, and, and I don't believe that, that they've arrested everyone who was there, and I don't know that they intend to. Um, I'm sure that, uh, that, that the uh, investigators have reviewed that video thoroughly over and over and hopefully they've they've been able to identify everyone who was there and um, whether or not they're going to be charging more people or if it's if it's just the ones that were arrested today I think it was today that they were arrested they were arrested yesterday Tuesday we're recording this oh, on okay. Wednesday mm -hmm. great okay but you know I, I if more arrests are coming I don't know but but hopefully they at least have the the people who are primarily involved in this um, terrible attack yeah, they have been booked in. They're in a juvenile detention center right now. The authorities have said that they plan to charge them as adults. They've been charged with murder. And um, the thing is, Danny, even with an arrest, even if they are convicted on the murder charges, I, it just doesn't feel like it's enough. Well, it's all we can do. I, you know, I mean... Unfortunately, that's that's where we are now. Is that there, there's no way to stop what has happened. So now we have to to do our best to to lock these people away because anyone who's violent enough to stomp someone's head, uh, when when you're stomping stomping on someone's head, you're you're doing it with the intent to murder them. Uh, everyone knows this. It's not you don't think okay, I'm just going to be winning this fight or injuring this person significantly. Um, 
everyone's smart enough to know if you're going to stomp on someone's head, you're probably going to kill them or there's a very likely chance that you will. So they have to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, which um, charging them as adults is is the first step in that process, because my understanding is that that um, none of the uh, the people who have been arrested were adults that they range from, I think, 13 to 17 years old. And in Nevada, Nevada law allows uh, allows the prosecutors to charge anyone over the age of 13 as an adult in a, in a case like this, a murder case. So um, it, it will result in significantly longer sentencing than if it were left with the juvenile authorities. Another thing that bothers me about this when it comes about, it comes about when we're talking about responsibility is it, I understand these investigations take a while. Obviously, we want things to happen immediately, we, especially when there's a videotape, when there's evidence, there's, there's video of it. Um, and maybe I'm just dreaming here in old-fashioned, but boy, I really would have liked one of these kids and their parents to have stepped up, stepped up, even before the charges, stepped up and said something and come forward. But no. No, these cowards, oh no, <laughs> they they have the ability to be there, beat him, take a video of it, but they do not have the courage to come forward and apologize. Our victim here is 17-year-old Jonathan Lewis Jr. He, of course, has paid the ultimate price for stepping up for a friend. Um, this happened a block away from Rancho High School in Las Vegas on November 1st around 2 p.m. According to the family, a group of bullies started picking on Jonathan's friend, who's a smaller teen, and I guess the bullies took his AirPods earlier in the week. Uh, you know, there's a little discrepancy between uh, what the father has shared with us and what p police are sharing with us. And it just could be because there are, you know, a, a lot's been going on with this case. So the father says at some point that the smaller boy was literally picked up and put in a trash can. You know, this isn't a movie about fraternity pranks. You know, you don't put a human being in a trash bag, in a trash can. It's, it isn't funny. There's nothing funny about this. Um, so Jonathan stepped in to try and do the right thing to help his friend. And then that's when the group turned on him. Now, his father says that his John, that his, that his son, Jonathan was fairly strong. So he didn't go down easily. And that just infuriated the mob so much more that even more kids jumped in on him. Um, again, the father says that another teen in this group tried to intervene by pulling the people off of Jonathan, but they just beat him up until he couldn't um, get himself up and help. Now, there was a police news conference that provided more details. They believe that the AirPods and maybe a vape pen may have been taken, let's say, earlier in the week, and that it's possible that this fight that occurred was one which was arranged between the parties disputing to settle this. Yeah, that and that is uh, recent information. In the beginning, it, it seemed like they were just jumped, you know, right. robbed and jumped. But now it, it does it does seem the information is showing that there were two incidents, you know, one sometime previous to the to the 
to the murder and then that there was actually um as you say almost a an agreement to meet and resolve the issue which you know that's that's troubling and and you know hopefully parents can can help their kids to understand don't ever try to resolve issues like this you know you can't you can't it's not like when i was a kid i mean when i was a kid guys used to go across the street to the park after high school and and resolve their issues in a fist fight now it seems like there's not any such thing as a fair fight and and mob mentality is uh the rule so what what may have you know been the intention of this guy of hey i'll settle this with you one-on-one that's just not going to happen very often anymore and it's a dumb thing to do you, you just you have to think of other ways or or make sure you educate your children that that this isn't how you resolve your issues. You, you don't agree to go meet someone and have a fight because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't. It could be a complete setup. You, you just don't know. So here is Lieutenant Jason Johansson of the Las Vegas Metro Homicide Department. We quickly learned that the fight was actually over a pair of stolen wireless headphones and possibly over a stolen marijuana vape pen uh, from incidents that occurred earlier in the week. And that as a result of those stolen items which were taken from the victim or the victim's friends, they had agreed to fight with several of the subjects in the back alley uh, where the fight occurred. After school let out, all parties then walked to that back alley where as you see in the video, our victim uh, removes his clothing, is get, engages in a uh, fight initially with one subject, and the minute the punch is thrown with that person, uh, 10 subjects immediately swarm him, put him into the ground, and begin kicking, punching, and stomping on him. So by the time police reached Jonathan, he was bleeding severely from his head. Obviously, he'd been stomped on. His injuries were just so severe. Obviously, taken to the hospital, went straight on to life support immediately where he was for the next six to seven days. He never recovered. His father, Jonathan Lewis Sr., described that he and his mom had a lot of hope that maybe, you know, Jonathan would wake up. Um, here's what he shared about that time with Fox 5 Las Vegas. Jonathan's mother and I just sat there and hold, held our son's hand for I have days and nights and, and just hoping and praying that, you know, that he could recover. Well, Jonathan never recovered, uh, never recovered. Six days later, on November 7th, Jonathan died from his injuries. As you heard the lieutenant say that the coroner's office listed this as blunt force trauma. That was the cause of homicide, blunt force trauma to the head, and that his death has been ruled a homicide. So what's interesting here, also troubling, frankly, it's probably more troubling than interesting. Shortly after Jonathan got to the hospital, this videotape is shared everywhere. This thing goes viral. The beating of Jonathan becomes someone's entertainment. What upsets me is how long this took to arrest these young men. Two of them, I guess they're still looking for at least two more. Oh, I, I just, it turns my stomach, Danny. So this whole thing just turns my stomach. So I don't, 
I don't know where these other two are. The, the father had shared publicly during this frustrating period um, that he, it was his understanding that at some point the school intervened and tried to talk to the students involved to figure out what happened and that the police were claiming that somehow that further complicated their investigation. I don't know that I, I truly believe that. Do you? Well, I don't know. Um, but I'll say this about the investigation. It's, I'm never troubled when it takes, um, a length of time for arrests to be made. And the reason why, quite frankly, is that as, as soon as the handcuffs go on, there's a clock that starts and there's a, there's a tremendous amount of effort that goes into, uh, getting, getting enough, um, evidence forward to be able to, to arraign your suspects. So as soon as the arrests are made, you've, you've basically started a clock on yourself. And, and if investigators are, are not concerned about the suspect fleeing or, you know, other people being injured or murdered, then it's, it's prudent to, to take their time and make sure that they have their facts and, and their evidence uh, prepared when they go forward to, and present the case to the prosecutor's office. Because once they do that, you know, the, then they're under the gun. They have a lot of, of uh, things that have to be, you know, prepared and ready to go. And so I'm not, as far as how much time it took, I'm not concerned with that. Okay. That's reasonable. That's very reasonable. Uh, I'm coming at it from an emotional perspective, I think. Um, well, you know, Anna, the, uh, um, the case that you and I met on, uh, my partner and I, it was well, almost two years before we arrested that, that person. And we knew, you know, he was our only suspect. It was a matter of putting the case together, but it was a, it, it, the, the case took so much work to be able to prove it, you know, that, that if we had arrested him early on, uh, we would have been just absolutely, you know, waylaid with trying to, to get that evidence forward into the DA's office. There's a good chance that the case would have been dismissed. So, you know, I, to take your time and, and, and put the case together when there's not an additional threat to the public, you know, like in the instance of a, a serial killer or a mass shooter type of thing, you know, the OJ case, the OJ case, I, I, I was perplexed when they put their handcuffs on him. I, where was OJ going to go? He wasn't going to disappear. But when they did that, they, they started a time clock on themselves. This was LAPD. And, and, you know, those of us in law enforcement at the time were watching and thinking, wow, kind of surprised you did that. But that's my point. It's just something to think about when you, when you, when you, you know, fret about whether or not arrests have been made yet. Believe me, they're, they're working. They're working probably 16, 18 hours a day to put that case together. And when, when they're ready, and apparently they are now, then the arrests will be made. It must have been very difficult for the parents to make a conscious decision about whether to look at that video or not. I don't know what I would do. Part of me would need to see what they did to my child, and the other part of me would have to look away because it would be unbearable to watch what they did to my child. I couldn't imagine. Here's the father describing the first few seconds of looking at that videotape. I saw a couple seconds of this video on accident. And these kids are just like, it's just like lunacy. I can't even just imagine what's, how it ever even comes to this. 
Apparently there are other videotapes that the police have not made public and the people involved have decided not to make public. All of a sudden there's some restraint being shown here. Isn't that shocking? All of a sudden restraint, really? Um, so what will justice look like in this case? I honestly, I have no idea. Nothing will bring Jonathan back. But here is Jonathan's father explaining to Fox 5 what justice means to him. Justice is, is a deep, deep thing for me, and there's a lot more to it than, these, than just these kids going to prison. To me, is what, what, what is the community going to do about this? You know, what are, when, when are people going to wake up and start having some compassion for one another and have some empathy and actually have a sense of community and actually work towards real solutions that for these children that are just going absolutely mad. Danny, I have to say that the father's composure and looking at this incident as being so much bigger and more troubling than just the murder of his son shows what a thoughtful person and what a thoughtful family this young man was raised in to not just look at one thing, but to look at the entirety of it. And I guess, you know, this could be his life mission to work on this, but the sadness remains at the very core of this crime that a young man's life was taken way too early. Yeah, his, his, um, his level of reasonableness and, and, um, thoughtfulness is is truly astounding in such a situation uh he, he's the father i'm speaking of he he obviously uh he's he's a um a pretty well thought individual and um it'll be interesting to see what what happens going forward i i have a feeling you know that that he's going to um that he's going to use this to try to make the world a better place and and god bless him for it you know Yes, and we've, we've seen that uh, with many victims of crimes. Their families have carried on to change laws, to change procedures, to become not just advocates for their own situation, but for other families in need. Um, I think that's why I get so much out of crime reporting, because when I sit down with these families, like when I met the mom on your case with a little girl who was murdered. I learn so much about compassion, healing, forgiveness, and change. Um, it's a lesson, and it's a, it's a gift that, that these families have when they share that. But boy, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. You know, uh, Adam Walsh comes to mind when, when you talk about that. America's Most Wanted yeah. uh, is the result of, of him losing his son. And as I recall, it was um, it was a, a, a kidnap murder, maybe even a sexual assault murder. I don't remember for sure. But but the point is, he, he's made a huge impact, you know, going forward with his life because uh, he's he's helped bring hundreds, if not thousands of of violent felons to justice through his program. And, um, and I've seen it with other parents. I I've seen some amazing things happen after, after they lose a child. And 
I've always thought, you know, I, I don't know that I would react the same way. I, I don't know that I would be able to compose myself and, and to go forward like that. But, you know, and God pray, that, you know, I pray to God that, that I never have to know. But until you're in that, that situation, I guess you just don't know how you're going to react to it. And um, all you can do is say, you know, God bless them, man. Police are still asking for information. So anyone, if you have information on what happened in this case, or you think um, you may know the source of more video evidence in this case, the Las Vegas Metro Police Department is asking for your help. So please step up and help Jonathan and his family get justice. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next case actually is from multiple cities and countries, and it's about an ex-CIA operative who has pleaded guilty to drugging and sexually assaulting more than two dozen women in Mexico, Peru, and in Washington, D.C. The accused here is 47-year-old Jeffrey Raymond. He has admitted that he drugged and violated these women at his apartments, apartments that were provided for him and paid for. By the U.S. Embassy, in other words, the U.S. government. Prosecutors say that Jeffrey, from 2006 to 2020, recorded, photographed 28 victims while they were unconscious and unable to consent or say no. So who is this guy? Well... Jeffrey Raymond was fluent in both Spanish and Mandarin, worked for the CIA for a long time. He was working at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City when his crimes were first discovered. His work with the CIA led him, obviously, to travel extensively, but he also did that in his personal life. And here's the thing. You know, listen, this is not James Bond over here, okay? This is not who this guy is. He's not Tom Cruise. He's not, he's not any of these characters. But you are in a unique position when you are that person because you have entree and access to things that most people do not. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not talking about a beat cop here. We're talking about a CIA officer in another country has carte blanche. Yeah, and you know, it's it's amazing that it went on for that long. Um, I, I can see someone getting away with this for a short period of time, but for 14 years, he was, he was doing these things. And you would think that, that someone had to have come forward or, and there had to have been suspicions early on. But, um, but, you know, the question you have to ask is what kind of oversight do they have of these operatives that are in other countries doing the work on our behalf, you know? Seems like not a lot of oversight if you got a guy like this for 14 years committing these crimes. Absolutely not. You do not. And I believe, I believe that the only reason 
And you may think I'm jaded, but I believe that the only reason the State Department even investigated this guy is not because of what he did to women, but because they probably thought that he was a threat to national security, and if he had done this, could he have compromised any secrets of the country? So, I'm sorry, but I am critical of the U.S. government because this guy went on for a long time committing these crimes against women in other countries, walking in the door with a suit, Mr. CIA here, right? Impressing these people, taking them back to his fancy attache apartment. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it would be interesting to know because I, frankly, I don't know um, if you do, uh, please stay so but I, I don't know if if these crimes were committed in conjunction with his duties in other words were these informants people he was working um you know who, who were these victims or is he a guy that had a job abroad and you know on his off time would go to bars and meet women and bring them home and do this and it matters it matters quite frankly because you know there's a, a a thing that's called under the color of authority. And if a person is, is using their authority, like if, if a, you know, cop pulls a, a person over and, and, um, you know, uses that authority to get them to submit to things, you know, in similar nature, that's uh that's a, a big time felony. And because we expect more of our law enforcement officers and agents, correct. You Absolutely. know, so, and as, as well, we should, so, you know, that that's something that I'd be interested in knowing is, is was he doing this as part of the work he was doing? Were the victims people he was involved with as a CIA agent or was it just almost kind of a, I, I hate to call it a side deal, but you know what I mean? Like his off-duty time, this is what he did. I don't know. He's not charged with doing this under, you know, uh, color of authority color of authority that's not one of the charges in here so we'll i don't think we're ever frankly going to know everything about this case simply because of the position the man held so the way prosecutors and the state department have told the narrative of this case that he was doing this on his off time and using this M.O. of, hey, I work for the State Department. I don't think people usually come out and say, hello, I work for the CIA. Generally, the cover abroad is, I work for the embassy. I work for the State Department. And um, as part of the charging documents, uh, the prosecutors have suggested that using his position as working for the embassy was something that a that was attractive to other people that made them think, oh, I, I'm meeting with like the cream of the crop because usually the State Department to get that kind of a post is a very big deal. So, you know, you've been vetted by the U.S. government, you've been set abroad, you're given an apartment, you work at the U.S. Embassy. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff movies are made of. And they say that he used, used that to lure the women, but... Prosecutors didn't go so far as saying that he did this while doing any kind of covert work. But look, all I have is, you know, what you read in spy novels, which are sometimes based, obviously, in true stories. And you see in movies and documentaries, 
spies go really far overseas doing things to other people that are very bad to get information, including this kind of stuff. So, I don't yeah, know, and it could I? be, and it could be that that the victims were led to believe that that he could do things for them, you know, um, whatever that may be, you know, whether it's, uh, you know looking to come to the u.s or being you know helped with uh sorting out any kind of legal issues who knows but if any of those things are, are elements of this crime then he should absolutely you know have have all of these charges enhanced to to reflect that he's you know he's committed these crimes under the color of authority well i Part of me really wishes that this had gone to trial instead of these plea deals, but I think the prosecutors, which really ultimately work for the U.S. government, probably want this guy to take a plea deal to shut up and go to prison. Well, that's the thing. You, you know, like you, I'm a little bit uh, skeptical as well when it comes to the federal government, especially uh, in recent times. But yeah, who knows Who knows what they're thinking? And and I'm sure that, that, that a big part of their uh, agenda is to to clean things up, you know, to to make sure it's not messy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, because who knows what other things this could expose. So over the course of these fourteen years in three countries, prosecutors say that Jeffrey openly presented himself as a high-ranking embassy employee and did so on dating apps. Like, who lists that on a dating app? Like, I would think that, you know, when you show up at the U.S. Embassy for work on the first day, they say to you, so, you, you know, you don't tell the world what it is that you do for a million right. reasons because you're the kind of person people want to kidnap. You know, if we're, right. if we're in a country that's at all unstable and you're traveling. So I don't understand who puts that on a dating app, but whatever. So... Prosecutors say that he would lure his victims back to his fancy apartments paid for by the U.S. government, and then he would drug the women, put something in their drinks, and then wait until they were incapacitated. Jeffrey was first accused of sexual abuse on May 31st of 2020. Now, I don't know that this is the first time he was accused of abuse, but this is the first time that the victim created such a scene that the police were called and the U.S. Embassy had no choice but to deal with Jeffrey. Okay? Right. What do you, right, you don't, this guy didn't just wake up and start doing this then. No. No, no. So authorities say police became involved when a naked woman was seen screaming from the balcony of his Mexico City expensive apartment. She was pleading for help. According to the victim's statement, she last remembered having a glass of wine with the man before blacking out. Jeffrey would later admit to sleeping with the woman, but he claimed that their encounter was consensual. Well, of course he did. So this one was an incident in which the U.S. government and the authorities could not look the other way because it was so public. I think that's the only reason he was stopped. Yeah, it could be. I mean, there, there could be allegations that have been made over the years and, and weren't taken seriously. And unfortunately, you know, that actually is the case with a lot of the, the especially date rape suspects, you know, and people who are, are drugging people to, uh, to take advantage of them. 
you know, allegations are made, but they're so hard to prove that until there's, you know, some incident that like this one where, uh, you know, something happens and it's, it's obvious. A lot of times these things just are swept under the rug. That's what my fear is here. Well, this incident led to the unraveling and the stopping of this man. He went back to Virginia and then he resigned before they could fire him. Now, the State Department says that they began an investigation immediately on their own, searching through his phone, his emails, computers, and his digital files. Now, I don't for a minute believe they did that to help the woman in Mexico City. I think they did that to cover their butts to see what else this man was up to and to see how much, you know, of a liability he was. Authorities say that the spy, I'm going to call him a spy, what the hell else was this man up to? He worked for the CIA, I mean, especially when they say he worked for the CIA, you know, because not everyone who works at an embassy works for the CIA, although they help the CIA. So he tried deleting his incriminating information, but as you all know, the digital forensic investigations are able to retrieve and restore so much of this data. So between his personal and work phone, investigators say that they discovered hundreds of photos and videos that this agent had recorded depicting the sexual abuse of unconscious nude women. The assaults happened both in Mexico City and the D.C. area. Authorities were able to identify 24 victims in the recovered media. Some of the women depicted, however, now when they say identified, I should be clear, they were able to determine that there were 24 females who were victims, but they couldn't identify all of them. We don't know who they were. So fearing that there were more victims out, th out there in December of 2020, authorities actually made a plea regarding Jeffrey Raymond and the FBI dedicated a webpage saying, you know, if you believe that you were a victim of this man, please contact the FBI. So one would think with all of this incriminating evidence, this would be a really, this would be a slam dunk, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, without, without being privy to, to all of the information and evidence, I mean, it seems like they, they would have a strong case. In addition to that, prosecutors say that they found numerous troubling internet searches in, um, Jeffrey's phones and computer. They say that he searched terms like Ambien and alcohol and pass out, vodka and Valium, um, you know, and then asking a pharmacy via email, do you have chloral hydrate for insomnia? Really? Really? Uh, prosecutors allege that Jeffrey meticulously detailed his victims and potential victims. He had a database of his targets. He would organize the victims by name, ethnicity, and then notes about his victims. This is a predator. This is a serial predator. And it really makes you wonder too, if, if he was a CIA operative, um, my understanding, and of course I haven't worked for the federal government, but, but it seems that, that our, our, um, 
operatives that are given so much trust and leeway and access that they that they are watched carefully. And you would think that uh, with that, there would be psychological examinations, polygraph examinations, drug testing, and not just, you know, at the at the time that a person is hired and trained to do the job, but periodically throughout their careers. So, you know, again, the thing that bothers me is you got at least 14 years that we know of of him committing these crimes and and how how does how does no one pay attention how does no one get onto this guy how how is it that even his you know electronic footprint isn't isn't viewed by the people who are supposed to be watching over him you know yeah. kind of a kind of a scary thing it didn't start with the naked woman screaming in mexico city it ended Mm-mm. with her it right. didn't start with her So Jeffrey initially pleaded guilty to his crimes in July of 2021. However, he decided to change his mind, and he withdrew his plea shortly before he was supposed to be sentenced in May of 2022. At the time, Jeffrey claimed that he had received insufficient counsel on the matter before making a plea. Oh, because it's all about him and his rights, of course. God forbid anybody... (laughs) should step on his civil rights (laughs) because it's all about Jeffrey, isn't it? So his motion was ultimately granted in October of 2022. Jeffrey said that there were potential violations of his constitutional rights because he was forced to surrender his passcodes for his digital devices. Can you give me a freaking break here on this guy? Honestly, really? That's your problem? (sighs) So he claimed that there were other possible violations by law enforcement um, that were never investigated by his previous attorneys. Okay, fine. So this motion and this deal is all withdrawn. And then prosecutors scheduled trial again. So now he has new attorneys and he's supposed to go to trial in October of 2023, last month. So Jeffrey has these new attorneys and they're working and they're you know, doing all their due diligence in the filing to make sure his civil liberties are in no way violated. Um, and then something happens before this trial. <laughs> maybe, maybe he, he started thinking, hmm, I'm going to go before a jury. I'm charged with 25 crimes. Maybe things might not go my way. Really? <laughs> So earlier this month, on November 7th, he agreed again to another plea deal in which he has to plead guilty. Okay, as part of this plea deal, Jeffrey had to admit that he recorded the victims, used videos and photos while the women were nude or partially nude. He had to admit to touching the women's bodies while they were unconscious and incapable of consent. This is what I don't like. They cleaned up what he did. They called it other things like touching when we know damn well it was far worse than that. And that's yeah, what makes rape. my stomach turn. Yeah. And and what are they offering him? Do you know what the plea yes. bargain is? So he ends up pleading guilty to sexual intercourse without consent rather than calling it sexual assault and rape. This, this, 
I don't think this is okay. And that's for two of the victims that were in the recordings. Then investigators believe, and they believe he raped as many as six women in Mexico City alone, but it's only two women that he admits to. In the deal struck with federal prosecutors, Jeffrey was only convicted on four counts instead of the 25 that he was charged with. We don't know what he will be sentenced to because sentencing is scheduled for September of 24. However, as a part of this plea deal, Jeffrey could face between 24 and 30 years in prison, subject to supervised release. And as part of the deal as it's written now, he would have to pay restitution to his victims, $10,000 per victim, according to court records. But until he's actually sentenced, we have no idea how much prison time he will do. And again, what bothers me here is that he's admitting to various sexual crimes, but he is not admitting to the truth of those sexual crimes, which are the sexual assaults and rapes. And, and that bothers me. And I realize this is all in making a deal, but Danny, I'm sure there were many times where your stomach turned when, you know, someone was charged with a worse crime and they end up pleading to something less. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a certain, um, I don't know. I, I hate to say, um, disappointment, but, but truthfully, you know, when a, when a person has committed crimes, that uh that that he should be held accountable for you know and, the, and then they work out these deals and they and they kind of um they kind of soften up the edges with with how they describe it it, it just feels like they've they've taken some of the edge off of it and it, it doesn't seem right but ultimately what matters is is he going to stay in prison and how and for how long because uh this guy should be in prison the rest of his life he's a predator he's He's been a predator for probably his entire adult life. I agree with you. He should not be let out. I mean, so many have criticized the prosecutors and the State Department and the government saying this this is leniency because there's documented evidence of him being a sexual predator and that they have dismissed the most serious charge of aggravated sexual abuse and called it touching. No, that is not okay. Like I said, I really wish he took the gamble and went for a trial. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, we will see what happens here because he pulled out of the last one right before sentencing. So I, I, don't, I'm, I don't believe this guy. Yeah, and why are they why are they not sentencing him until September of next year? I mean, if if the plea agreement has already been reached, does it is it really going to take ten months for them to sentence him? I mean, come on, get it over with because he'll be. You're almost certain he's going to have some other legal maneuvering between now and then. Yeah, it's just it's almost expected at this point. I don't feel that this is justice in this case. I don't know what you all think, but I don't believe this is justice. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. Our producer, Will Updike, is here now. Will, we need a break. This has been a very heavy podcast. 
this one's a little lighter um yeah th this one's a little lighter there's still it, it has some issues it still is a, 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 not necessarily a crime but someone was terminated um i'll just get right into it this is about an unfortunate fast food break in an emergency situation this case comes out of washington dc where a firefighter has been terminated after making a pit stop for fast food while on an emergency call. Now, this incident dates back to March 24th of this year when two firefighters slash EMTs were called to respond to a report of a woman suffering from chest pains. Sounds pretty serious. The, um, the victim who has not been named was at a location about a mile away from the firefighters. So they were actually dispatched in this situation because they were closer than any other responding medical unit in the same vicinity. Like, they, you know, these are the guys that are the closest. It seems pretty, um, it seems pretty important. However, instead of promptly responding to the woman in need, the pair apparently stopped at a local Chick-fil-A. Now, there's kind of some discrepancies in the timeline of this, right? Okay. Um, according to the firefighters, uh, they had placed their orders at the popular chicken restaurant via the online app. Um, and they were already in the process of picking up the orders when the call came in. Now, there's that's their claim. There's some other claims on this. Um, you know, they said that they were fatigued after a long day of firefighting. They were completely famished. Uh, this was a necessary stop. <clears throat> uh, of course, anytime something like this happens, there's like an inc incident report. And according to a log entry uh, from the firefighter, the one who's been terminated now, uh, they noted that they were only at the restaurant for a few minutes tops. And they claimed... There was no delay in patient care or response. Now, this didn't exactly fly with the local fire department. And following the incident, both of these firefighters were placed on what's called no patient contact status in the department. I don't fully know what that, that means, but I'm guessing anytime there's an, there's an EMT situation, these guys are probably not your guys uh, for, for the time being. Now, like I said, this occurred back in March. It's re-entered the news cycle because one of the firefighters who also has not been named has now been let go. Now, a key reason appears to be sort of this log entry, um, and that, that's why one has thus far been let go while the other one has not. Um, so th this log entry, uh, which they uh, the department said was a discrepancy, um, led to a board investigation, and they ultimately deemed that this man should be terminated. Publicly, the department stated, our official position is that the individual is no longer working for D.C. Fire and EMS. Now, the other firefighter in this is set to face their own trial board, but in the meantime, they're still employed pending the outcome of this whole situation. Um, and now just getting back to the victim in this case, uh, they were transported to an area hospital. They received treatment the same day. It's assumed they've since recovered, but the department is not releasing any further information on the victim, obviously. Not, you know, not really uh, the public's business. But um, yeah, interesting one in this one. I, I think it really, to me, comes down to the timeline um i have you ever been in a situation where you realize how long the fast food like drive-through is after you're already in and then you're completely boxed in totally um, i guess if you're i don't know can't you i feel like you should be able to circumvent that though if you're if you're already in line and you're a firefighter you know they should have maybe a they should have an express line i don't know uh, but you, you know, know i'm not in a position to save anyone's life that's so true. you know yeah. if i'm late to something nobody really cares and i <laughs> But, you know, for a firefighter or for a police officer, you know, Danny, this makes me think of things like when you're stuck on a stakeout and stuff like that and you have to go to the bathroom and you're starving. You've been there for hours and you're, you know, and, and it's in that moment where you're just like, I just got to go pee. You know, I just um, it's a tough one. Yeah. Hey, well, you know, it's a tough job. And that's that's why you, you know, 
get all the uh, big bucks and and uh, you know people expect the most of you. I can't imagine that these guys actually stopped at a Chick Fil A on the way to a call. I, my guess is they probably um, had put in the order and maybe they were in line or, or you know sitting out front for the pickup or whatever. But um, it's kind of funny that this this topic comes up because a couple months ago, my wife and I were um, out doing something and we went to Chick-fil-A to get lunch. And, and, you know, the lines are always just so long there. I mean, they're very efficient. They go pretty quick, but you've got these two lines. And I mean, it's it's you're not going anywhere. And and there was a, a cop in the line ahead of us. And, and I looked at my wife. I said, what on earth is this guy thinking? You know, I mean, never. In my days of patrol, you never put yourself in a situation that you couldn't immediately take off and go another direction. Rather, it was, you know, if you were going to go to a, a food joint, you'd park in the parking lot and you'd walk in or whatever. But you'd never get in a line that you couldn't get out of. And for that matter, even when you're driving in traffic, you always tried to leave yourself room in an escape route because you just never knew when you needed to all of a sudden go fast. So. It just is kind of a surprising thing. And and as far as uh, the comment about it, it only, you know, took a couple of minutes for them to get there. Well, if you're having chest pains, a couple minutes a lifetime, man, you know, it's a couple minutes matters a lot when it comes to life saving efforts. So really no excuse for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I like what you're saying, Danny, of giving them the benefit of the doubt, because we don't, you know, all the details and stuff will probably not be made public. But, you know, it, it is very possible that they were already there, that they were already like in a situation. And this just kind of ha- happened to happen at a very unfortunate time when they were the closest to respond. Because um, I, you know, I tend to like to think the best of our first responders. Um but yeah, uh, some people were, uh, you know, obviously pretty upset by this. MC said disturbing. We're paying taxes for that. Um, you're not being taxed on the Chick-fil-A. So that, that part, um, that, that part is reasonable. Um, Emily said, and how much will a family or person have to pay for the ambulance? Exactly. This one I empathize with. Um, yeah, you're, you're getting a huge bill from your, from your insurance provider for this, for this trip. And to think that it was delayed, even if it was a mishap or a misunderstanding or, or whatever the unfortunate situation is, uh, like Danny mentioned, you know, when it, when it's, even if it's just a couple of minutes in this situation, that's a big couple of minutes and an expensive yeah. couple of minutes. Um, some people were, uh, some people can empathize with this. Bowie said, if you tried their holiday shake, you'd understand. I've actually never had it. I, I'm <laughs> not holiday. You know, I, I've never been to a Chick-fil-A, so I don't know what their You've never been is. to a Chick-fil-A? No. I you don't like chicken? I do like chicken. I do like chicken. I I don't know. I, I've never been a Chick Fil A person. Like I love In and Out Burger. <laughs> yeah, In and Out Burger is classic. Chick Fil A. The thing for me is like the sauces are so good. You can kind of you know you can get fried chicken at a lot of places now, but uh, the sauce. Oh, I love are... Popeyes. Does that count? Do I get points for that for loving Absolutely. Popeyes, Popeyes and their biscuits? My, Popeyes is my favorite. Please. Um, is my favorite chicken place. Uh, and uh. You know, uh, Anna, you're not familiar with uh, Chick-fil-A's hours, but they have some some bizarre policies. Uh, my favorite comment came from Sharky Sharky. They said, her fault, she should have had chest pain on a Sunday, which Chick-fil-A is, all Chick-fil-A's are closed on Sunday. Mm. Um, uh, which I like that one. I, you know, would it have been different if they'd maybe picked her up something along the way? You know, oh, like a little. Oh, no, 
No. <laughs> we heard you were in need. We were at Chick-fil-A. We grabbed you a little something. Uh, I don't know if that adds insult to injuries. But anyways, that'll do it for this week's comment section. Thank you so much to everybody who left those. You can do that over on our YouTube community page. And we'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Anywhere you do your social media stuff, you can interact with us. And until next week, thank you so much. A little programming note here for everyone. So uh, we have recorded some special podcasts for the holidays because next week will be Thanksgiving. And so the team will be off, but we do have a podcast for you. And when we record these special podcasts, frankly, if you were to ask me which are my favorite podcasts, those are always the ones I love the most because they're interviews based usually on a book or some investigation and the the person that we're interviewing has a very close connection to it so for me it's always the best kind of interviews and those are my favorite podcasts so we've got something special for you and i just want to wish all of you you know a truly safe healthy um, joyous holiday as you gather with family and uh, we are grateful for you uh, our crime family, and I just wish you all the very best. And we'll be back the following week with our regular podcast. So, um, you know, these are the times, Danny. Thank you for everything. Where can people find you on social media, get your books, all that good stuff? Do you have any more books coming out? Yeah, I should have another uh, novel coming out, hopefully this winter. Wow. Um, that's yeah um, that's what i'm hoping for so but uh, uh amazon's probably the easiest way to find my books and it's danny r smith uh my my website is either murdermemo.com or dickiefloydnovels.com and uh you can find everything about me there and i'm on facebook and twitter i don't do much on twitter but i'm there and i'm on instagram mm-hmm. i'm curious your new book is that part of the dickie floyds or something else Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it'd be book, uh, eight in the Dickie Floyd series. Amazing. Amazing. Your second career is so fabulous. Yeah. (laughs) Just fabulous. Well, you can find me on all social media at Anna G news, Anna with one N. I don't usually talk a lot about crime because I need a break. Um, but I do talk a lot about rescuing dogs. I'm a volunteer for a purposeful rescue. So If any of you um, are looking for some fabulous dogs, uh, we have a bunch that we rescue and we call them magical unicorns. Some of them are, have some challenges, but need a little extra help. And that's what this rescue is all about. So um, that's what I choose to do with my time. I, I drove a dog for four hours last week after I recorded two podcasts because this little girl needed to be transported from um, the hospital to her foster parent. And, you know, everybody gives however it is that they can. So uh, that's what I like to talk about. This episode and all our episodes can be found wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, more than 5 million subscribers, and also on our website to get our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.